everybody, it's uh, Brad from the Salvage Title Podcast, and this is the first episode of a series where I want to talk about uh, some things regarding the inter-recessionary period of automobiles. This is being done in concert with a post I published on Medium today, Monday, June 6th, uh, talking about this period and kind of reflecting on what some of the bigger surprises, disappointments, good cars and bad cars were. And, you know, this is a little bit more of an easy way to kind of get thoughts and perspectives out uh, on this era that really has technically just finished. Uh, it was released today in the news that the recession uh, officially began in February of 2020, closing out uh, more than a decade worth of worry, uh, expansion for some, uh, crippling debt and other things for others. And, you know, the cars kind of reflect that in a weird way. You know, you turn the clock back to 2008, uh, before GM went bankrupt, before Chrysler went bankrupt, uh, cars were in a weird spot. Um, we saw a continued emergence and dominance of SUVs in the marketplace. We saw a continued strength, I guess, as it were, for uh, European car brands. Uh, you know, Mercedes had bought Chrysler. Uh, it was the merger of equals. We had, you know, European and other Asian operations merging together with American ones to create these interesting vehicles that catered to narrower and narrower spectrums of buyers uh, simply because people had money to spend and people had the time to go out and own and drive these vehicles. And now that we're in 2020 uh, and the story has been written from 2008 to 2020, uh, you can kind of see some of those same things happening. Uh, over the past couple of years, there has been a similar growth and in inequality among individuals. We have seen an increased number of SUVs and crossovers. We've seen more and more vehicles target smaller and smaller markets of people uh, simply because money needs to be spent to cater to these folks. And uh, yeah, it's not exactly a great spot to be in. So in this one, I think we're going to focus in on some of the surprises and disappointments. The next episode, we'll talk about uh, some of the best and worst cars. And then maybe we'll do a wrap-up thing where we just kind of talk about stuff in general. Uh, so talking about surprises first, I guess, is an easy way to go. Um, one of the main ones I wanted to highlight when thinking about this, and you know, it's... If you've listened to regular episodes of the Salvage Title Podcast, you've heard me talk about Hyundai and Kia so much because they really genuinely build good cars. Uh, thinking of some people who, for lack of a better term, I grew up with uh, on the internet, uh, there was a guy on the GT Planet forums ages ago who was singing the praises of Hyundai and Kia uh, in the mid, early mid aughts and saying, you know, you guys keep your eyes out. They're going to be, you know, ringing the neck of GM and Honda and many more because of how much content, how much engineering they're putting into each and every one of these cars. They're getting better so quickly that, you know, other brands aren't going to be able to keep up once they hit the appropriate marks. And I think that first watershed moment was with uh, one of the most recent cars, which is the 2014 to 2019 uh, Hyundai Sonata. Now, this Sonata, you know, took a lot of the energy that I think was lost in its predecessor and reapplied it to a model that specifically... Uh, what's a good way to put this? It, it specifically grew from the lessons learned in the previous one and really took the fight to Honda and Toyota in a way that I don't think very many people would have expected. Uh, you, know, you know, of course, standing here in 2020, six years after the car released, it's easy to go, hey, you know, you can still see that Hyundai didn't quite know what to do in terms of exterior styling. You can tell that Hyundai kind of sort of phoned it in with some of the interior styling. Um, but overall, the car was a very solid chassis. They had very good engine options. The transmissions were tuned correctly. Uh, and dollar for dollar, you know, the Hyundais were charging, what was it, 1000 $1,500 less than a comparable Honda and Toyota. You were getting more standard equipment. Uh, they were one of the first cars to have a dual boot Android Auto and Apple CarPlay system. Um, they were just generally ahead of the curve. And it's definitely worth celebrating. I mean, this is a 
car that came out in a time where people began to question whether or not sedans, big family sedans, were going to be it. Uh, it came out at a time when, you know, technology was changing. Uh, it came out at a time where I don't think anybody could have really expected this thing to be a hit. And I think saying the words a hit kind of implies that there was some sales success for it. And I think there was to some extent. In many ways that there has always been some level of sales success for Hyundai and Kia based simply on price and their more forgiving uh, loan terms and so on and so forth. But uh, it just didn't need to be this good. Um, they probably could have done another small step forward with this car and gotten away with it on price alone because of course by 2014 some of the market had recovered i think there were definitely there was definitely a greater feeling that there were jobs to be had there was definitely a greater feeling that you know the auto industry on the whole had gotten back on its feet um but you know the later revisions of this model even really seemed to signify that hyundai and kia knew what they were doing and really seemed to hone in on what that special sauce was that was missing from Honda and Toyota. Um, the Camry in particular is one to note because the predecessor to the current Camry, while I don't think it was quite as bad as the one before it, it still wasn't a super great car. It didn't ride very well. It didn't look very good. Uh, it had the same engine and transmission that it's always had. It had a lot of the features that just seemed okay. And Honda too with the Accord. I mean, the current Accord for as good as it is, I think it's uglier than the one that came before it. And even then, I think it was uglier than the one that came before that. Um, but Honda still had to come off of all of the transmission problems that the Accord had had. Uh, Honda was, you know, still... I don't know, being Honda and doing the weird cost-cutting things that they were doing at the time. And this Hyundai just seemed to be the antithesis of that. You could get, you know, heated and cooled seats uh, with leatherette coverings. You could get a pretty big uh, infotainment system. You could get, you know, a huge sunroof. You could get so many things in this car. The Honda and Toyota weren't even offering at the same price point. Um, these were features that were coming standard on certain levels of the Sonata that weren't even available on some luxury cars from, you know, I don't want to necessarily say that Volvo didn't offer these options, but, you know, dollar for dollar, Hyundai was really killing it. They were knocking it out of the park. And this, you know, again, is one of those things where Hyundai was watching everyone. They were taking notes on each little car that they put out. They were taking notes on what was being praised by other car companies. And you look at this particular one and you go, you know, hey, this is a pretty good car. They did their revision later in it, which I think made the car look a little worse, but the content again got significantly better. And now you look at the 2020 Hyundai Sonata and you go, holy shit, they did it. They made a car that is arguably better than the Accord and the Camry. They made a car that's better than the majority of midsize sedans sold anywhere in the world. Out of nowhere. It's been 20-ish years that the Sonata and the Optima have been on sale in the U.S. And they finally have reached the pinnacle of the market. Now, that being said, you know, Toyota and Honda are doing their best to fend off the... I don't want to necessarily call it a tax from Hyundai and Kia, but, you know, they they have definitely recognized that they have significant challenges in front of them to keep Hyundai and Kia away from the top spot within their class. I don't think the Camry is ever going to vacate that top family sedan position, but the Sonata deserves that spot with how good it is. Now, that also being said, the new K5 is on the way. I'm very, very interested in seeing what that car eventually looks like and becomes here in the United States. Uh, but, you know, this this 2014 to 2019 Sonata is still, to a great extent, I think one of the best cars you could buy used right now. Uh, they, they seem to be not very expensive when, when it's out on the used market, especially with not a whole lot of miles on it. Uh, you get anything from, I think, 16 on up. You get the Android Auto and Apple CarPlay system available in it, which is going to keep your infotainment uh, pretty standardized for the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, the cars are really, really great. I really like them quite a bit. And again, it's, it's definitely one of the biggest surprises uh, in this era. Now, speaking of another 
big surprise in a segment where it did not need to be anywhere close to as good as it was. Uh, that's the Chrysler Pacifica. Uh, the Chrysler Pacifica is, of course, a minivan that is based on a car chassis using a name from a long-dead crossover that not very many people really liked. Uh, this Pacifica is, of course, the replacement for uh, the Chrysler Town & Country and, to a greater extent, the Dodge Grand Caravan uh, that had predated it. Uh, the Caravan, I think, finally goes out of production this year uh, after being on sale in the U.S. for more than 13 years. I think it was 2007, six or seven when that one first went on sale, uh, which is a pretty lengthy amount of time uh, for a vehicle such as that. Uh, this new Chrysler Pacifica uses an architecture that's, I believe, related to the Chrysler 200, which is also the same one that's under a number of other FCA vehicles. Uh, it's got a nearly 300 horsepower V6 under the hood. Uh, you can get it as a hybrid. Uh, it's got stone-go seating on pretty much every trim level, uh, except for the new Voyager that kind of splits the lineup up. Uh, and for 2020, they're adding all-wheel drive to the vehicle that is not going to eliminate the stow-and-go setup, which is a very interesting move. I think Chrysler has really identified that these vans are indeed popular. Um, it is a segment that is worth paying attention to, and ultimately that it's uh, something that they shouldn't have ignored for so long. Excuse me as I grab a drink, but uh, yeah, the the Pacifica just didn't need to be this good. I mean, Chrysler, I, I like to accuse the current Grand Caravan and I guess the former town and country of being phoned in to some extent simply because it feels so old when you get inside it. Um, it came out at the tail end of the, uh, what was it, the, uh, the Daimler Chrysler era. Uh, Cerberus had taken over. They decided to reinvest and redesign the interior. I guess it was it. I guess it was at the end of the Cerberus era. Then Fiat Chrysler became a thing. Fiat Chrysler then redid the interior uh, layouts and other things. And, you know, it did improve the vehicle somewhat. But, you know, they just never felt right, if that makes sense. Like, you know, having grown up in the late 80s and early 90s, you look back to older uh, caravans, voyagers, uh, town and countries, yeah, they were based on the K platform, but they felt pretty okay in the era. They were built fairly solidly. You go to the second generation ones, the round bean ones that were meant to compete against the uh, the Dustbuster GM vans, the Ford Aerostar. Uh, I guess it would have been the whatever star it was at that point in time. Uh, but, you know, those ones I think also had kind of a cheap feel to them, but that was still Chrysler at its peak. And, you know, they still packed those with a lot of features. I had the double sliding doors. Uh, they did a lot of smart and interesting things. And when this third generation van came out, it just didn't hit the mark. Uh, they sold the rights off to it to Volkswagen, where they did the Rutan, uh, which also felt like a cheap, gross badge job thing uh and so for the pacifica to be the follow-up to that to say no that wasn't good enough to say that no we don't need a full-size crossover to fit into this slot to say no you know this is the future <laughs> that we want this is you know the the future that liberals want that that meme that's that with the chrysler pacifica i think you know this this van looks really good like I, I i'm still blown away that the van looks as good as it does all these years later the materials inside feel pretty nice feel very premium uh, fiat chrysler has been doing a very good job of keeping the infotainment system up to date and constantly revamping it to give it features like android auto and apple carplay eventually uh, offering the bigger 8.4 inch touchscreen eventually uh, they've got the rear entertainment system that works really really well and again, they offer a hybrid version at a time when they didn't really need to do a hybrid version. Um, you know, if, if you're not at all familiar with the Chrysler Pacifica hybrid, uh, it is a plug-in hybrid uh, where it is able to drive about, I think it's 30 miles or so on a single charge, which is more than what most people drive per day. Uh, that is entirely on electric power. And then after that's done, it switches to a hybrid mode uh, that can still get up to 40 miles per gallon uh, when the gasoline engine is running. And in the end, you know, that seems like a particularly smart way to sell one of these things because 
ultimately, when you decide to buy the hybrid, it's not significantly more expensive than what the gasoline version is. Uh, you do get a federal tax credit, and I believe it is a full federal tax credit of $7,500. You're spending less on gas, you're spending less on maintenance, and if I remember correctly, it's within the first year you end up saving more money getting the hybrid versus the regular gasoline one, uh, simply because it's just that much better of a choice. Like, it, it's just, it all stacks up, and... You know, I think there are definitely complaints about the Pacifica that are worth noting. Um, you know, it isn't quite as well made as some of its competitors like the Honda Pilot, or not the Honda Pilot, oh my gosh, the Honda Odyssey. Uh, the new Sienna's coming, and I think that might ultimately wipe the floor just a bit <laughs> with the Pacifica. But in the end, you know, they could have just rode in completely on previous expectations they could have came in with something that was you know the same chassis just tarted up one more time to look a little more modern uh but fiat chrysler did a really great job and knowing that this year they're adding new content to it we're getting a significantly updated model for 2021 uh it seems like they have figured out what the formula is to not only maintain their sales, but grow their sales somewhat in a segment that has been traditionally weak for a long time. And I think as long as they continue to develop this platform, develop this idea, develop this notion that vans are still a good buy compared to a crossover or an SUV, I think they're going to find a lot of buyers potentially. Because I know, speaking from experience, uh, I would not mind owning a Chrysler Pacifica these days. I think they look really great. The Red S model, for whatever reason, is one of the coolest cars I've seen this year. Uh, if you haven't seen one before, look it up. Basically, the Red S is a Pacifica uh, that comes in these special color options, and then it gets a full red and black interior that looks like, you know, something out of a Dodge Viper. Um, but like with the pearl white exterior and the red leather interior, it is just ah oh, sublime, amazing, incredible, beautiful, uh, just we don't deserve the Chrysler Pacifica to be as good as it is. Uh, and I'm still blown away at the, it being one of the biggest surprises uh, in this recession era. Now, the last big surprise that I wanted to touch on is the Chevy Sonic. Uh, if you've ever been following me at any point over the last, what, decade or so talking about the Chevy Sonic, uh, it's, it's one of those cars that, again, does not deserve to be as good as what it is. Uh, the Sonic, of course, replaced the Aveo here in the United States. Uh, that was a really bad, sad little car uh, built by Daewoo, sold as a Chevy, um, that, you know, really <laughs> still surprises me to this day that people drive it. Bernie Sanders has an Aveo, which continues to shock me. Uh, but the Sonic, on the other hand, was a fresh seat design done by uh, GM of Korea, which was an evolved version of Daewoo, uh, built on an all-new chassis, using a bunch of new engines at the time. Um, and they really focused in on this idea of using balance maybe is a good word to use in the design of the car uh they had this really unique instrument cluster behind the steering wheel that moved with the wheel like the uh nissan 350z uh, was meant to be like a motorcycle binnacle um i thought that was a very unique choice uh the car style wise had some very interesting headlights that were actually not sealed they had individual little lenses for the high beams low beams all that stuff um you know, the interior was spacious for its size, but in a little more comfortable than, say, uh, a Mazda 2 and a Ford Fiesta that would, it would have competed against at the time. Uh, but it wasn't quite as practical as the Honda Fit. Uh, but it definitely felt a little more substantial than the Toyota Yaris. Uh, the other great thing about the Sonic was that it was pretty affordable. You could get a very well-equipped Sonic close to launch uh, for right around like 17 or 18 grand that would have had the 1.4 liter turbo, the five-speed manual, and I think you could still get a sunroof with it and fog lights, and that seemed like an absolute steal at the time. Now, the uh, Sonic, let's see, how long has it been around? I, I always forget what year was the first year. Was it 2012? There we go. 2012 through the present. Uh, GM's kind of been dragging their feet when it, came, when it comes to keeping the car 
up to date. Uh, I got a little bit of a visual upgrade, I think, in 2018. And it's still around here in 2020, but ultimately, you know, it it doesn't quite hit the mark the way that it used to is maybe a good way to say that. Um, I drove a 2013 LT with the 1.4 liter turbo. It did not, or sorry, it did have the sun and light package. So I had the sunroof uh, and the fog lamps. It had the nice alloy wheels. Uh, it was red. It had a gray interior. It was basically the perfect spec that I wanted. It had been, I think it was used, so I don't remember how long ago this was when I drove it. It was a couple of years ago. I had a Ford Fiesta at the time, and, uh, or no, sorry, I didn't have the Fiesta yet. I ended up buying a Fiesta instead of the Sonic, uh, because the Fiesta was cheaper, and in the end, it ended up being a little more reliable by some people's accounts, but that's a whole neither here nor there thing. But the Sonic, you know, it just drove and felt a way that a lot of other small cars, or a lot of other small cars didn't at the time. Um, you know, come 2012, the Fiesta had been around for a year. Um, the uh, Fit had been here for a few years. I think the Yaris was due for a refresh. Um, you know, the Versa had been around. And, you know, they really ran a gamut in terms of pricing. On the one hand, you could get a Versa for less than $10,000 with almost nothing in it. You could get a close to $30,000 Fiesta, uh, ignoring the ST model, but doing like a full Fiesta titanium uh, with, you know, leather and heated and cooled seat. I don't know if it had cooled seats, but, you know, had all the bells and whistles. And, you know, for 18 or so grand, the Sonic kind of fit a nice little spot. And, you know, getting inside it, the seats were comfortable. Um, but the thing that is difficult to communicate in words sometimes is how good the controls felt. Not necessarily the switch gear, but the way that the steering wheel was weighted, uh, the way that the clutch pedal worked, the way that the uh, transmission had shifted, the way that the brakes felt, uh, the way that the car transferred weight and cornered, uh, the way that the 1.4 liter turbo revved up and down with that little quick spooling turbo. Uh, it was a great little car. It was a ton of fun. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think the press dogged it for being a little too heavy. Uh, GM certainly didn't help themselves by not building a full-fat Fiesta ST competitor. Uh, the Sonic RS looked really good. It drove really well, but it just never had the sporting credentials to be what it could have been. Uh, just the same, you know, GM never really gave it the updates that it deserved. It got a few things here and there, but like, you know, it just wasn't enough to stay competitive in the way that the Fiesta was. Uh, the other interesting thing about, at least comparing it to the Fiesta and to some extent the Mazda 2, was that the Mazda 2 really didn't lie about what it was. It was a cheap, lightweight platform with a small little engine in it. Had a great feeling, uh, transmission. God, that thing just snapped like a Miata that just felt amazing. Um, but, you know, it was cheap and rackety, and it had a, a rickety, rackety, however you want to say that. Uh, it, it it was buzzy, it was loud, it was a great city car, but out on the highway, it didn't feel as substantial as the Fit. Or, excuse me, not the Fit, the Fiesta. And the Fiesta just, you know, I think was a nice balance between the Mazda 2 and the Sonic. Um, it had an appropriate amount of power. You could get a lot more if you went with the EcoBoost 1 liter, or if you got an ST. Um, the Fiesta had a lot of nice features, it did feel a little bit cheaper inside than what the Chevy did, um, but it was still a ton of fun, especially out on back roads. I'm still amazed by the way that Ford was able to make that car as fun as what it was. That being said, again, it didn't feel quite as good as the Sonic. And as somebody who owned a Fiesta for three, more than three years, uh, you know, I, I think I've got enough firsthand experience to say that it didn't feel quite as good. So, yeah, the Sonic as a really great and interesting surprise. I, I, it's one of those cars I will defend until the day I die. GM didn't have to build a car as good as what it was, uh, but they had the money from the federal government buyout uh, to do it right, and they did. And it's still amazing that the car is still here today. Um, it sounds like GM is keeping it around just in case the economy tanks. Guess they were right. Uh, but it doesn't sound like it will take all that much to end up killing off the car. Um, I'm still wondering to some extent, too, if they'll eventually 
convert it to become some other kind of vehicle. Uh, my initial hypothesis years ago was that the Bolt uh, was on a platform that would eventually become the Sonic to some extent, and that never really played out. Um, and that's still kind of disappointing because I like the Bolt quite a bit, but I do wonder what a gasoline version of the Bolt would have been like. Uh, but the Sonic, you know, it's still one of my favorites, and I'm really, truly hoping that someone out there is keeping one of those Sonic LTs with the 1.4 liter turbo in really good shape, or an RS for that matter, uh, because they're going to be great cars to take to Litwood in 2035. Uh, they are really going to be cool little things if they hold up well, um, and I hope someone, anyone, is doing a good job. Uh, with it because it deserves the love uh, and respect that I've uh, given it right here. Well, now that we've talked about surprises, it's time to talk about some disappointments. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to kind of classify a disappointment, and in the same way that with surprises, it kind of gets foggy between what's good and what's bad. Uh, you know, I could definitely argue to some extent that the Chevy Sonic was one of the best cars of this inner recessionary period. I ended up classifying, or classifying as a surprise just because, you know, there are much better choices out there. And in the same way with disappointments, I think you could also classify some of these as truly bad cars. But it's also that there are worse things, too. So kicking off the list, uh, the ninth generation Honda Civic. Uh, the Civic, of course, has been around for a very long time. The Civic, of course, is still one of the best cars that you can buy, really, in any era for a not super expensive amount of money. Um, and, you know, there are ups and downs with any car over its long history of production. What makes the ninth generation Civic so bad is that you can generally tell that Honda just didn't give a shit. Uh, they had come off of a pretty big sales success with the 8th generation Civic. Uh, that was the one that had a lot of very weird early 2000s wedges and shapes and curves and moved some of the uh, instruments to the center of the dashboard. Uh, it also, I think, had some of the two-tier dashboard look. Really, generally, was not a super big fan of it, but nevertheless, you know, engineering-wise, there were some bright spots in terms of the Civic Si. The hybrid was novel, if it was indeed, end up turning out to be a little bit unreliable. Uh, but the eleventh generation, excuse me, the ninth generation Civic. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, really, just kind of rode in on this wave of issues that just couldn't be resolved. Uh, apparently, Honda started developing this car right at the beginning of the recessionary period. I think it was 2008 is when they started working on it, uh, through 2009 into 2010. They ended up pushing it back a year in terms of release, so it ended up getting risks, or sold in late 2011 as a 2012 model. And the ninth generation Civic just felt wrong. It had gone from... This lightweight, fun, energetic, reliable, fuel-efficient car to something that just felt like a commodity. that You could walk into Ikea and pull off the shelf and yeah, it would work for a while, but it just didn't quite cut it. Especially when you compared it to the Corolla at the time. And you, you know, of course, you could level a lot of these same kind of claims at the Corolla really of the past 20 years. Simply because Toyota just keeps reiterating on the same engine, the same transmission, the same switch gear, the same whatever. But that's part of what makes Toyota Toyota. You know, you don't get this incredible reliability score, this cr incredible reliability history that Toyota has without doing that. Honda, on the other hand, had it. And then it was completely gone uh, by the time that this car launched as a 2012 model. Uh, this was one of the first times in my life I can think of Honda releasing a car that just was dead in the water almost instantly. I mean, yeah, you know, the Honda Accord Cross Tour is a good example. Uh, the CRZ is another. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> the, the ninth generation Civic just wasn't it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, this car released in 2011. I think we were at the peak of the crisis, uh, financial crisis at that point. Uh, you know, people were really down and out at, at that time period, and Consumer Reports got their hands on one, and they ended up taking away their recommended score um, that had been given to the Civic for seemingly forever before that. 
Um, the car was not fun to drive. Uh, it sounded bad. It felt bad. It looked bad. Pretty much everything that could have gone wrong with this Civic went wrong. And Honda heard about it from everyone, and they made a commitment to make the car better. And so from 2012 through 2015, pretty much every single year, Honda had a new uh, interior upgrade, it had a new exterior upgrade, it had some different packaging upgrades, and they ended up kind of, sort of, making the car a little bit better overall. Um, but it just never quite felt like a Civic. It just it just wasn't fun. It, it, it didn't have that motorcycle engineering spirit that all of the Hondas had had before. It just, ugh, like it just, it just was not good. You know, I remember a friend of mine asked me for advice on buying a new car because she wanted to get a Honda Civic. And she's like, should I buy one this year? And I was like, no, you shouldn't because next year's is going to be better. And she's like, well, isn't that true for every year? And I'm like, yeah, that's true for most cars. But specifically with the Civic, it's better every year. And <laughs> she was, she didn't really listen to me. She ended up buying a Civic anyway, and she liked the car quite a bit. Um, so, you know, I can't blame her for making that decision. But ultimately, you know, it just never did the job the way it should have. It was a massive disappointment because, you know, you wind the clock back just a little bit and the Civic was this fun, lightweight, cool little car that, you know, someone, I mean, I guess maybe not everyone coming out of high school, but, you know, with a decent job, you could afford to go down to your Honda dealer and buy one. And it would have felt like a good decision. And instead, you had cars like the Chevy Cruze, cars like the Ford Focus, uh... To some extent, a car we'll talk about in a later episode, the Dodge Dart, uh, that arguably were better choices at the time. And Honda was really caught flat-footed in this era, and they really took a wallop not only in their Consumer Reports ratings, I think J.D. Power even docked them quite a bit for this car, um, just everyone and everything really focused in on this Civic and just tore it to pieces. And, you know, I think as time goes by, we'll judge whether or not that was completely true. Um, but, you know, just getting inside one, feeling how they felt, looking at how they looked, driving one, it just never, never seemed quite right. And of course, Honda, again, something we'll talk about later in one of these episodes where we discuss this piece. Uh, they did turn it around for the 10th generation Civic. Uh, they, they made amends for how bad uh, the 9th the generation was, and to some extent how bad the 8th generation one was. Uh, that, you know, I think hopefully will steer Honda clear of problems uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, I wanted to talk about luxury cars in the disappointment section, and I was finding it hard to highlight one specific luxury example because you know the weird thing about luxury cars is that they make people they make cars for people who aren't me you know they're making cars for people who want looks they they are making cars for people who care about just interior quality they're making cars for people who just want to make a statement and you know it's tough for me because I could never dream of buying something that costs more than eighty thousand dollars. Uh, but in the end, you know, I'm still here to criticize things. And uh, eventually what it came down to was, you know, who who had the most egregious examples of disappointments in this era? And, you know, you can highlight Mercedes-Benz where their cost cutting finally caught up with them and, you know, things started getting bad. You could highlight, you know, <laughs> the obvious engineering disasters that BMW have put upon this world with their turbocharged engines, uh, so on and so forth. You know, there, there, there's lots of disappointment to be spread around in different areas. But instead, what I ended up being captured by was the idea that a luxury brand, on the whole, had fucked up so bad that they have a whole era of automobiles that just ultimately become nothing. Like, they, they have meant nothing other than keeping the doors open, I guess, uh, to some extent. And that would be Jaguar. Uh, Jaguar, of course, had escaped Ford uh, in this era. They were sold uh, by Ford Motor Company to Tata along with Land Rover. And, you know, Tata's 
you know, very well-lined pockets did drive a lot of great innovation for the brand. You know, the, the XJ transformed into this beautiful, unique example of British luxury uh, that was unlike any XJ that had come before. You know, they had turned the uh, XE Coupe into something that was, you know, this transcendent vehicle that, you know, I still think is one of the best Jaguars that have ever been made to cars like the F-Type and the I-Pace and the XE and the F-Pace and the E-Pace and so much more. And, you know, on the whole, I think what's hard about Jaguar is that I don't think I want to call any of their cars necessarily bad. I like them quite a bit. They look really good. They apparently drive really well. Uh, those that I've sat in, they feel very nice, um, but they just largely don't exist. And and when I say those words that they don't exist, I mean it as in you just don't think about them. And it's because they're not talked about. And it's because the marketing of Jaguar just hasn't figured out how to sell people on these cars. You know, you look at something like their... Uh, their villain series. That was something that they were doing for a while where they got all these British actors to pretend to be villains and they all drive Jaguars and how it's cool to be a bad guy who drives a Jaguar. And it just seems not at all what you want to talk about and what Jaguar is. Uh, in the same way that, you know, they continue to develop engines and transmissions that are fine like you know they're they they basically run the same uh supercharged v8 for what feels like forever uh they've run a new two liter turbocharged engine that's good enough they use the z8 or zf uh eight speed gearbox that's fine you know they they've got the uh yeah i i, I don't know like it's just they just seem to consistently miss the mark you know they, they come out swinging with a car like the xe a car that i think i would buy over a three series or a c-class or many other uh entry-level luxury vehicles uh it's there for a year in the automotive press and then it's completely gone away uh they haven't done the tweaks necessary to keep it relevant they haven't done the work other than the svo special projects to bring attention to the car and you know, in the end, it's it's just sad. It's sad that Jaguar doesn't work in this inner recessionary period and that they've really just let themselves go and drift off into nothing. Because the other thing is, the flip side of this is, Land Rover has done so well. I mean, yes, you can pin that on the fact that crossovers and SUVs have taken off like a rocket in the past, you know, 12 years. But on the whole, you know... Jaguar still sells versions of Land Rovers that are basically the same underneath, and yet they just can't capture the attention of the market uh, to make them the sales successes that they deserve to be. It's, it's just so incredibly frustrating. And, you know, I can sit here an armchair quarterback about what they should do as a brand and how they should fix their image and how they can do things. And, like, the only thing I could think of is Lincoln. Lincoln is a brand that was in the same kind of floundering position where they had one or two pretty okay cars and Ford ended up going, we're going to hand you $3 billion, you're going to turn yourself around or you're going to die. And so Lincoln came up with this idea to become this personification, I don't know, personifications, maybe not the right word, but this, this brand that signifies what the idea of American luxury cars should be. And so Lincoln invested really heavily in making vehicles that are nicely styled, that have this opulent look and feel on the inside, that are more comfortable and quiet. They're not out here chasing Nuremberg lap times like Cadillac is. Uh, they're not out here building, you know, <laughs> luxury spaceships like Volvo is. They're building cars that are meant to be, you know, taken with a boat behind them out to the lake and to look good going down to the dinner downtown or going to a concert or whatever. And Lincoln has been surprisingly successful at doing this. You know, they're not shooting to outsell the BMW X5. They're not shooting to outsell the Mercedes-Benz uh, E-Class. They're just building cars that they think people are going to like that people who have the appropriate taste are going to buy, 
And in the end, you know, they've created an identity for themselves within the luxury segment that I think is commendable. And it seems like that's something that Jaguar should want or could possibly do uh, if they focused in on, you know, answering the question, what is a British luxury manufacturer? Is it something that is going to be chasing lap times with Mercedes-Benz and BMW? I don't really personally think that should be the case. Um, at the same time, you know, what does British luxury mean in terms of, you know, interior quality and refinement? Unfortunately, historically, that has not been a whole lot. But, again, using the correct materials, the correct colors, I think an ample use of wood, uh, you know, you could definitely make something that makes a statement. And I think ultimately what it really comes down to is Jaguar needs to figure out where they are in the in the lineup of luxury car brands you know i don't think they're up at the high end with mercedes-benz i don't think they're up at the high end uh with bmw and audi and whatever else i think they're maybe not quite down at the lowest end either where mazda's trying to get into um where you know some volkswagens have been in the past 20 or so years i think they're more kind of in that upper third to two-thirds range with Acura, with Volvo, uh, with, you know, Lexus, that kind of spot where, you know, it's got maybe a little bit of an older crowd, but they know what they want. They're here for, you know, a comfortable, quiet experience that can still be fun in some instances. And I think Jaguar could still build fun and interesting cars to bring people into the dealership, but ultimately they got to worry about taking on the ES350. They got to worry about taking on the new TLX. Those are the cars that matter in this segment. And, you know, for the money, I think you get the most amount of value. And if Jaguar can figure out how to compete in that space, I think they would do a much better job than where they're at now. And hopefully, you know, we can look back on this, you know, 12 years or so as a time where, they figured out how not to sell Jaguars and how not to represent their brand and come out the other side a much stronger company. Now the vehicle, the last vehicle that I want to talk about is one that's definitely worth taking a drink of beer before we get into it because it's one of my favorite cars that's come out in the past decade. Uh, and admittedly, I know it's not a very good car. That of course is the Chrysler 200. Now, the Chrysler 200, and bear with me, I think is one of the best-looking sedans to hit the streets in I don't even know how long. It's one of those cars that is, you know, it's not going to compete against the Citroen DS or the Jaguar E-Type as one of the best-looking cars ever, but it's definitely one of the cars that I think knows what it is, knows what it could possibly be, and in the end, I think stepped the game up significantly for American car brands uh, with a car that just, you know, I think ticked all the boxes in the right way. Um, of course, you know, the Chrysler 200 came out at a time when sedan sales were contracting and contracting quickly. Uh, this car was only available for a really small handful of years. I think it was, what, uh, 14, 15, 16, I think if I remember correctly, three model years. Uh, the 200, of course, was based on the same chassis as the Dodge Dart, uh, the Chrysler Pacifica, the Jeep Compass, the Renegade, uh, the Cherokee, so many other vehicles all kind of riding on the same version of the platform. And uh, it used the same engines, transmissions, uh, as many of the other ones. So the uh, base 200, you could get the 2.4 liter Tiger Shark engine uh, made into a nine-speed automatic that was controlled with a little uh, dial selector. Or you could get the larger 3.6 liter Pentastar V6 with just under 300 horsepower. Um, you could get that as a front-wheel drive model or an all-wheel drive model, and that all-wheel drive system was derived from the Jeep system that was in the Cherokee. So uh, power would primarily go to the front wheels, and then with another turn of a different dial, uh, you can engage the rear axle uh, and have a pretty good all-wheel drive setup that, you know, could get you out of trouble. Um, and then if you're not using it, it would actually physically disconnect so you weren't losing gas mileage by spinning uh, that rear axle that was not in use. Uh, you know, the Chrysler 200, I think, had a style that 
you know, is still very unique in that it's very round. Uh, it's got some very strong body lines down the side of the vehicle that, you know, gave it just this teardrop shape that I, I think is really, really great. You know, the current Pacifica van currently is using some of that style language that was developed for the 200 on it. Uh, I, I, again, think the Pacifica is really good for a lot of the same reasons. Uh, the interior had this beautiful layout in the 200 with the larger touchscreen, with the waterfall center console. Uh, you know, it had the gear selector on a dial, which was a bit different for an American car company. Uh, had a lot of neat little Detroit uh, Easter eggs throughout the car that were very, very cool. And in the end, you know, price-wise, it was pretty competitive against the Accord, the Camry, uh, the Malibu, so many other cars in the segment. Um, but it just didn't work. And it's still confusing to me as to why it didn't work. Now, that being said, you know, it is a Fiat Chrysler product. Fiat Chrysler does not have a very good reliability record, so automatically you're going to get dinged by Consumer Reports and JD Power and so many other things. Uh, it was using some new powertrain options that were not completely proven yet, which didn't exactly help things. Uh, it was an all-new car that didn't have all of the quirks in terms of uh, build quality figured out yet. And ultimately, it ended up getting its plug pulled uh, because Sergio Marchioni, who was the head of FCA at the time, uh, made the call that pickup trucks and SUVs and crossovers were going to be the only way forward for the company to be profitable. I think everybody screamed, hollered, was upset about it at the time. Uh, unfortunately, it turned out that Sergio was 100% right, and it was the smart move to make at Chrysler, and it's kept the lights on at Chrysler, uh, all things considered. And losing the 200, I think to me, now in 2020, uh, is the big disappointment, because it was a very good car. They could have kept going. If they would have kept innovating with it, I think it could have been a sales success, um, and, and they just pulled the plug too early. And, you know, we'll talk about the Dodge Dart in some of the worst car categories in a later episode. But, uh, you know, it just didn't deserve to happen like this. And it was a huge disappointment to see the 200 go. Because, you know, I, I, I don't know. I still think, to some extent, it's a great used car. <laughs> you know, the, the parts and service might not necessarily be there. I don't, I don't specifically know if the reliability is really all that great, but I think if you could find, you know, a really nicely kept, you know, 200 S with the V6 and all wheel drive or a 200 C with the V6 and all wheel drive, that would be a just wonderful highway cruiser, uh, that just would have gobbled up miles would have, you know, uh, it, it's it's just such a disappointment that it didn't get the Android Auto Apple CarPlay updates. It didn't get the the attention that it deserved to be a competitor against the Camry, against the Sonata, against the new K5, against all these things. Because, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It, my neighbor, I have a neighbor here where I live in my apartment complex that has a black one. And I think his is... A standard I think this is a 200 limited so it's a mid mid level luxury trim model and you know it's black it's got the upsized alloy wheels it doesn't have the little swoopy body kit bits but god it looks it looks good it looks nice and I know that they weren't a whole lot of fun to drive but they were competent you know and I know that it wasn't the car with the biggest amount of head headroom in the back. I know it didn't have the biggest amount of legroom in the back, but you know, if you've got kids or maybe you don't even have kids, maybe you're just a couple who take long drives and do whatever. I, I just genuinely feel like it's a good car that just got the shaft and it just sucks so much. And so to a greater extent, I'm hoping that with the PSA merger potentially happening happening with Fiat Chrysler, that'd be the Peugeot, Citroën, whatever, uh, that we do see a new version of the 200 later on down the road. You know, I don't know if that would be a, a Peugeot 508 getting rebadged for the U.S. I don't know if they would certify that car right now for crash standards, but they need some kind of sedan in the lineup because I think as car sales continue to trudge on, the news that we're seeing right now is that pickup trucks and SUVs are what are going to save the companies and keep them afloat. 
there's going to come a time when we're past this current recession that we're in, and we're going to realize that young people like me, who generally prefer sedans and more regular cars, are going to be buying them. And to not have some kind of option at your dealer lot, I think, is going to be bad. In the same way that, you know, look at how things were 2008, 2009, all these expensive SUVs, crossovers, pickup trucks around the lot. They couldn't move them because nobody had the money to buy them. And so every car company had to quickly develop these little cheap cars uh, to fill this, you know, sub 20K price range. And I think we're going to probably get back to there again. And, you know, maybe it'll be less than 30 grand or something like that. But, you know, to have, you know, a normal family sedan with a Chrysler badge on the hood, you know, fairly reliable, whether it's a Pentastar V6 or that new two liter turbo, you know, put a decent transmission behind it, make it get well over 30 miles per gallon on average, I think it could be a pretty decent sales success. You just got to find the motivation to do it. And Chrysler right now, I don't think has that, but, you know, maybe they will later on down the line. Uh, it's, it's tough to say, but uh, that's that's the disappointments for me. And, you know, again, it's a thin line between what makes a disappointment and what makes a bad car. Uh, and, you know, I definitely could have probably put some of these as bad cars, especially that ninth generation Civic. But uh, there are going to be worse ones coming up in a later version of this show. So uh, check back in. Uh, hopefully later this week, we'll talk about some of the best cars and some of the worst cars from the inner recession era. Uh, and then in the final episode, we'll just kind of talk about some some interesting things that have kind of developed in that time frame, uh, whether it's automotive trends, some cars that are worth talking about that maybe didn't quite fit the bill for a disappointment or a bad car, but just was a thing that happened and, you know, is worth talking about. Uh, yeah, we'll kind of touch on that as well. So anyway, guys, uh, if you have a chance, check out that Medium post. Uh, I've got it linked on my Twitter at twitter.com slash Y-S-S-M-A-N. Or you can just go on Medium and type in that same thing, Y-S-S-M-A-N. Uh, it'll pull it up. Uh, I believe I just titled it Reflecting on the Inter-Recessionary Cars uh, or Vehicles. And uh, yeah, give us some thoughts. So anyway, guys, we will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.